Good evening. Biden signs a raft of executive orders to heal America's racial divide. Putin gets a call. Impeachment trial gets some GOP support. New York City divests its carbon and remembering a giant of baseball. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, January 26th, 2021. In the first hit to the agenda of President Joe Biden, a federal judge in Texas has granted a temporary restraining order of a Department of Homeland Security memo pausing most deportations. The order is a victory for Texas Republican leaders who often sued to stop programs enacted by President Barack Obama. President Biden, meanwhile, signed four executive actions today aimed at advancing racial equity for Americans. The White House says people of color have been underserved and left behind. Biden invoked the police killing of George Floyd as he spoke before signing the orders. Those uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds that took George Floyd's life opened the eyes of millions of Americans and millions of people around all over the world. It was the knee on the neck of justice, and it wouldn't be forgotten. It stirred the conscience and of tens of millions of Americans. And in my view, it marked a turning point in this country's attitude toward racial justice. When uh, the six-year-old daughter, Gianna, who I met with when I met with the family, I leaned down to say hi to her, and she said, looked at me, she said, Daddy changed the world. That's what Gianna said, his daughter. Daddy changed the world. And I believe she was right. Not because this kind of injustice stopped, it clearly hasn't, but because the ground has shifted, because it's changed minds and mindsets, because it laid the groundwork for progress. Biden says the measures follow one of his core campaign promises to restore the soul of the nation, as he often said during the presidential race. He added the racial inequities apparent in the spread of the covid pandemic should be another wake up call to a nation with unfinished business. Forty percent of frontline workers, nurses, first responders, grocery store workers are Americans of color and many are still living on the edge. One in 10 black Americans is out of work today. One in 11 Latino Americans is out of work today. One in seven households in America, about one in four black, one in five Latino households in America, report that they don't have enough food to eat in the United States of America. Black and Latino Americans are dying of COVID-19 at rates nearly three times that of white Americans. And it's not white Americans' fault, but just a fact. And the Americans now know it, especially younger Americans. The past occupant of the White House often used his bully pulpit to attack anti-racism protesters. It was a distinct change to hear Biden praise the nation's youth. Today's generation of young Americans is the most progressive, thoughtful, inclusive generation that America has ever seen. And they are pulling us toward justice in so many ways forcing us to confront the huge gap in economic economic inequity between those at the top and everyone else, forcing us to confront the existential crisis of climate, and yes, forcing us to confront systemic racism and white supremacy. And the devoutly Catholic president restated his campaign theme of a fight to reclaim America's soul. I ran for president because I believe we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. And the simple truth is, our soul will be troubled as long as systemic racism is allowed to persist. We can't eliminate it. It's not going to be overnight. 
We can't eliminate everything, but it's corrosive, it's destructive, and it's costly. It cost every American, not just who felt the sting of racial injustice. We aren't just less of a, we are not just a, a nation of, of morally deprived because of systemic racism. We're also less prosperous. We're less successful. We're less secure. So we must change. And I know it's going to take time, but I know we can do it. And I firmly believe the nation is ready to change. But government has to change as well. We need to make equity and justice part of what we do every day. And Biden also addressed what he says is the fallacy that one group's rise means another's fall. We've never fully lived up to the founding principles of this nation, state the obvious, that all people are created equal and have a right to be treated equally throughout their lives. And it's time to act now, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because if we do, we'll all be better off for it. For too long, we've allowed a narrow, cramped view of the promise of this nation to fester. You know, we've, uh, we've bought the view that America is a zero-sum game in many cases. If you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get the job, I lose mine. Maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. We've lost sight of what President Kennedy told us when he said, a rising tide lifts all boats. And when we lift each other up, we're all lifted up. You know, and the corollary is true as well. When any one of us is held down, we're all held back. Biden then signed the four orders addressing housing inequity, ending private prisons, reaffirming commitments to Native Americans, and combating xenophobia against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. His first executive order is a memorandum for the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development to redress our nation's and the federal government's history of discriminatory housing practices and policies. Next executive order is reforming the incarceration system by eliminating the use of privately operated criminal detention facilities. Third executive order is a memorandum for the heads of the executive departments and agencies. Tribal consultation and strengthening nation-to-nation relationships. And the last executive order is condemning and combating racism, xenophobia, and intolerance against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States. I think the country's ready, and I know this administration's ready. Thank you. The order ending the use of private prisons only applies to jails and prisons for criminal inmates in the United States. Immigration officials can still use privately run detention centers for undocumented persons who are being detained by ICE. And the Kremlin says Russia and the United States traded documents today extending their last remaining nuclear arms control treaty days before its expiration next month. A Kremlin transcript of a phone call between Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin says the two leaders voiced satisfaction with the exchange of diplomatic notes about extending the new START treaty. The pact's extension doesn't require congressional approval in the U.S., but Russian lawmakers must ratify the move. 
White House Press Secretary Jan Psaki confirmed the call earlier today. Called him, called President Putin this afternoon with the intention of discussing our willingness to extend New START for five years and also to reaffirm our strong support for Ukraine's sovereignty in the face of Russia's ongoing aggression, also to raise matters of concern, including the solar winds hack, reports of Russia placing bounties on United States soldiers in Afghanistan, interference in the 2020 election, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, and treatment of peaceful protesters by Russian security forces. His intention was also to make clear that the United States will act firmly in defense of our national interests in response to malign actions by Russia. Biden has publicly called for the release of dissident Alexei Navalny, who was arrested after returning from Germany, where he was hospitalized after an apparent assassination attempt. Protests have swept Russia since his return to the country. And in impeachment news, last night, the House of Representatives, in a dramatic tradition, marched single file into the Senate chambers to deliver the sole impeachment charge of incitement of insurrection across the Capitol. But in a 55 to 45 procedural vote today, the Senate set aside an objection from Kentucky Senator Rand Paul that would have declared the impeachment proceedings unconstitutional. The vote means the trial on Trump's impeachment, the first ever of a former president, will begin as scheduled the week of February 8th but with little chance of conviction. Senator Paul made his argument in the Senate chambers. The Constitution says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 states, when the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside. As of noon last Wednesday, Donald Trump holds none of the positions listed in the Constitution. He is a private citizen. The presiding officer is not the Chief Justice, nor does he claim to be. His presence and the Chief Justice's absence, Chief Justice's absence, demonstrate that this is not a trial of the president, but of a private citizen. Therefore, I make a point of order that this proceeding which would try a private citizen and not a president, a vice president, or civil officer, violates the Constitution and is not in order. That's Senator Rand Paul, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says there's plenty of precedents to prevent an office holder from escaping impeachment by leaving office. The theory that the impeachment of a former official is unconstitutional is flat out wrong by every frame of analysis. Constitutional context, historical practice, precedent, and basic common sense. It's been completely debunked by constitutional scholars from all across the political spectrum. Now, the junior senator from Kentucky read one clause from the Constitution about the Senate's impeachment powers. He left out another from Article 3, Section 2, quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, unquote. If the framers intended impeachment to merely be a vehicle to remove sitting officials from their office, they would not have included that additional provision, disqualification from future office. The Constitution also gives the Senate, quote, the sole power to try all impeachments. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer Senior Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, who will oversee the impeachment, announced the result of the vote. In this vote, the ayes are 55, the days are 45, 
The motion to table is agreed to. The point of order is not sustained. Majority Leader. Chief Justice John Roberts is not presiding at the trial as he did during Trump's first impeachment. The shift is said to be in keeping with protocol because Trump is no longer in office. And the former head of the Voice of America's parent agency hired two law firms to open-ended no-bid contracts, including one specifying that top lawyers would earn $1,470 per hour. The two agreements have cost taxpayers close to $4 million over a five-month period, far more than was previously known, and possibly in violation of federal rules. The first details of the arrangement were made public last week in a whistleblower complaint against Michael Pack, who was appointed chief executive of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, known as USAGM, eight months ago. That's the parent agency of Voice of America. President Biden forced Pack to resign hours after he took office last week. A conservative documentary filmmaker before President Donald Trump nominated him to run USAGM, PAC had a brief and tumultuous tenure there. David Side, senior counsel at the Government Accountability Project, spoke with WBAI earlier today. The head of the agency, Michael Pack, instituted proceedings to remove a series of senior officials at the agency in the summer of 2020. At the time he began to remove them, Mr. Pack lacked the evidence to justify the removal. And so on the day they were removed, which, which bureaucratically meant they were put on administrative leave August 12th of 2020, Mr. Peck signed retainer agreements with large law firms in part to help him gather evidence that could then be used down the road as justification for getting rid of these individuals. Specifically, he hired one large law firm, McGuire Woods, and over the last three months has paid them something on the order of three plus million dollars in legal fees. Why do you think, from what you've seen in the complaints and what you learned, was the reason for waiting to find an excuse for firing somebody until after they were fired? What's going on there? Mr. Pack was seeking not simply to discipline them or slap them on the wrist or suspend them or put a letter in their file. He wanted to remove these people from federal service. And as federal employees, they have due process rights under the civil service laws. So Mr. Pack had to provide a legitimate justification for removing people. Removal from federal service is considered an extreme form of punishment for employees. He had to develop a record, which he obviously didn't have at the time, to support removal and therefore retain the law firm to do a deep dive into the email archives of the agency to see if they could dig up problematic emails and such, which could be used against the employees that exercise cost millions of dollars to do. So between the technical aspects of this and the actual attorney time it requires to go through this, the bills run up very quickly. He spent millions of dollars on a law firm to do this kind of stuff. Is this appropriate? Is this legal? No. It's duplicative of work that's done every day within the federal government by dozens, if not hundreds, of individuals, people. The issues involved here are nothing more than HR issues. There are reams of investigators throughout the federal government could have done this. The inspector general's office has investigators who do nothing but investigate agencies for fraud, waste, and abuse. And therefore, it was a gross waste of taxpayer dollars. 
what was Mr. Pack's motivation for doing all of this? He, first of all, was in a hurry because it was a no, as I, best as I can see, it was a no-bid contract. It wasn't set up through any kind of normal, ordinary procedure where there's notice of a contract given, applicants can bid on the contract, which takes time. Mr. Pack wanted to do this quickly. The reason that he used a private law firm was likely because he couldn't find anyone in the government who wanted to help him to do it quickly. And my assumption is there are people who were unwilling to assist him in this process, given that it was a case where he'd already moved against people and were now asked investigators to compile dossiers on folks. Mr. Pack had good motives to hide this from other people in the federal government, you know, other oversight agents, auditors, people within the agency who would raise questions about the conduct. We know about Mr. Pack's hard right-wing extremist connections, white supremacist connections. He brought in a lot of white supremacist or extremely right-wing people through this process. We know his close friendship and association with people like Steve Bannon and the rest. And was this, in some sense similar to what happened on January 6th, maybe, or just part of the Trump administration attempt to shift the government in an extremist right-wing direction? Mr. Pack's mission was to restore balance to the organization, which really meant converting the organization into a propaganda arm of the United States. This organization, by, by law and charter, is expected to act independently and exercise independent editorial judgment like any other media organization in the United States. And the reason for that is so that it establishes its credibility across the planet, and that reflects the fact that the audience exceeds 300 million viewers and listeners and readers. It's that kind of objectivity which the agency has built over decades. Mr. Pack had a different vision for the agency, as did members of the Trump administration, and he was called upon to try to implement that, and he began to implement it. Will anybody go to jail for this? Do you think there will be an investigation that leads to criminal penalties for this? We've learned in the last week that $4 million to date was spent, and the number grows literally by the day. So stay tuned. And that is the attorney, David Side. He's the senior counsel at the Government Accountability Project. He spoke with WBAI earlier today. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City officials on Monday announced a divestment of $4 billion in pension funds from fossil fuel companies. The New York City Employees Retirement System and the City Teachers Retirement System voted to sell off the securities, as well as the New York City Board of Education Retirement System. Mayor de Blasio made the announcement today. Just yesterday, New York City pension funds announced that we'll be divesting $4 billion from fossil fuels. $4 billion. And that comes from two very large elements of our pension system, the New York City Employees Retirement System and the New York City uh, Teachers Retirement System. This will be the largest fossil fuel divestment in the nation in history. And that was the mayor speaking earlier today, Mayor de Blasio. Bill McKibben, leader of the climate group 350.org, along with writer-activist Naomi Klein, began pressuring the city to divest three years ago. McKibben made the announcement with the mayor. This was particularly significant because of the signal it sent 
that the financial center of the world had gotten this message. And I said, I thought that New York's actions would be heard loud and clear. And they have been, to some extent, by other cities around the country and around the world. Paris and London, uh, two of the other great financial centers of the world, have now joined in this effort. And that's powerful and important to see. But it's also been heard profoundly on Wall Street. It's one of the things that set in motion the chain of events that's led even today to uh, the announcement from BlackRock, uh, biggest asset manager on earth, that it was going to insist that every company in its portfolio get on a net zero pathway. Uh, last night, uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, and a man with deep and long ties to Wall Street and the financial industry, gave a remarkable uh, interview in which he described the climate emergency we're in and the need for the U.S. government to take it on absolutely full steam. New York City should be very, very proud of what it's accomplished. And I have just the greatest admiration for those who actually made it happen. And that's Bill McKibben, leader of the climate group 350.org. City Comptroller Scott Stringer, also a candidate for mayor, endorsed the plan. And today is made possible by so many people, from our trustees whose leadership and steadfast commitment to retirement security kept this process on track, to investment experts who made sure that every step of this process was responsible, thoughtful, and and fiduciarily sound, to advocates who sounded the alarm about the growing financial and environmental risks posed by climate change. Because of all of you, New York City is leading the way toward a clean, green, and sustainable economy. Make no mistake, the impacts of the actions we are announcing today will be felt for generations to come. Comptroller Scott Stringer and the city unions were also supportive. Greg Flood heads the Teamsters Local. Over the last 15 years, if we would have invested in something else, we could have done equally as well, if not better. Furthermore, the way of the future is going toward electric cars. Electric cars means using less fuel. Using less fuel means the investment in fuel companies will be diminished. So this is the right time to divest from fossil fuels and not hurt the pension funds going into the future. So that's what we were concerned about. And it's always a plus when we can help the environment, help the community, and do the right thing. Teamsters Chief Greg Flood. And public advocate Jumani Williams added the deal would fight inequity. We're at last achieving a goal that's set forward to divest from fossil fuel owners and advance a new commitment to green energy solutions. We're now putting actions to the word, which is critically important. As we have seen, the future of energy and energy investment is in green infrastructure and green output. Divesting from polluters is a financial strength in addition to a climate justice imperative. Climate change shows the instability of the kinds of old energy we are now divesting from. We all have a responsibility in New York to pursue sustainable futures for both our pensions and our planet. And it's clear we can't do it alone, but we should never underestimate the power of New York moving something forward nationally and globally and what our market share means to so many things. Uh, This is an area where we have an obligation to lead with vision, with action, we're all relieved that the country's now back in the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, I was proud that even when the nation wasn't, our city still kept its commitments. We have to make up lost ground for the past four years, taking us a little bit backwards. But these agreements are the floor. Uh, they're not the ceiling. 
New York should be a progressive beacon. This is a great day. And I want to make sure we also show the equity issue. Even though climate change is going to hit us all hard, black and brown communities, as usual, are most affected. Public advocate Jumani Williams. And finally, Hank Henry Aaron, the supremely talented baseball legend known as the Hammer, passed away last week. He was memorialized in Atlanta today. He had played for the Atlanta Braves and before that when it was called the Milwaukee Braves. Baseball commissioner Rob Manfred, Hall of Famer Chipper Jones, former Braves outfielder Marquis Grissom were among those who spoke at the ceremony. Aaron's 755 career home runs broke the long-standing Major League Baseball record set by Babe Ruth and stood as the most home runs for 33 years until Hank Aaron stepped to the plate. It's gone! It's 7.15! There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron! Aaron faced vicious racist threats as he neared Ruth's record, but he never backed off. Baseball commissioner Rob Manfred also spoke. The man we gathered to remember today belongs on our sports, Mount Rushmore. He stood on and off the field above all others. While he made his name here in Atlanta and in Milwaukee, his loss has been felt across our great nation. Hank Aaron was an agent of change in our society. As he chased Babe Ruth's record, he received vile, racist threats. Through that wrenching period, he courageously demonstrated the strength to keep going. And that's the baseball commissioner. Teammate Chipper Jones also had this to say. I've been asked many times in the last few days to describe Henry Aaron in one word. Without hesitation, that one word is simply beautiful. The swing, the smile, and the spirit, all beautiful. And that's Chipper Jones, a teammate of the great Henry Hank Aaron, the Hammer. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, January 26th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.